going to be talking a little bit about stewardship today. We have been in this uh, series uh, through, through 2 Corinthians talking about authentic discipleship, real discipleship. What does following Christ look like in the real world? Okay? What does that look like day to day in real life stuff, not sort of uh, overly spiritualized, pie in the sky, what it ought to be for somebody somewhere. But, but Paul has confronted, okay, first of all, it involves being in one another's life. It involves life on life. Uh, discipleship doesn't happen as a large group of a couple hundred people on Sunday morning. It happens when you're engaged in the lives of one another. So it's life on life, it's relational, it's engaged, it's willing to confront, and it's, it's, um, it's willing to invite others along. Also, particularly last week we saw that authentic discipleship finds its greatest joy in the spiritual benefit of others. It rejoices, it finds its joy, it, it's willing to give itself to the spiritual advance of others. And that'll come even at a cost. That's because it, that's where joy is found. We're willing to do what it takes to give in order for the spiritual benefit of others. So, so that's interesting that Paul concludes that in chapter 7 because in chapter 8 he, he seems to shift gears a little bit. He seems to change the topics a little bit and he moves into talking about giving. Why does, why does he shift into that? It, it's because that there, there has been, as you've sensed through 2 Corinthians, there's been kind of a, a disruption in the relationship. And what, that, what happened with that is there had been a plan for the Corinthian church also to participate in gathering up funds from among themselves. They were taking an offering together in order to send that to the churches in Jerusalem in Judea. The Jewish churches back in Israel and especially around Jerusalem that were heavily persecuted because of their faith. They, they, as they came to Christ and, and as, the, as the population around them recoiled against that, they were ostracized from the community. And it might mean the loss of their job or it might mean that nobody would come to their shop for their services any longer. So it had a severe economic impact. Sometimes it would mean that for somebody in a family to become a follower of Jesus would mean that they would be ostracized, sent out from that family hopefully taken in by somebody else. And so Christians begin to band together, but they didn't have resources. And others, others around, the, around the region did. And so they're gathering those resources to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And the Corinthian church had, had, had committed, we're going to be part of that. And the Corinthian church was a wealthy church. They had financial resources. And so... This other stuff has gotten in the way. And one of the issues, one of the, one of the problems that, that has crept in in the Corinthian church is they've become more inward rather than outward. They've focused upon themselves and what is good for them and what works for them rather than the needs of others. And there, there's been this, this tension between them and Paul as a result of these things. And, but we saw in chapter 7, those tensions were resolved. That there was, a, that there was a, a joy together again. And Paul's joy was in their response to the word of God. Their, their commitment to fellowship with other believers. And, and now he encourages them in light of that. And, and th that step and that commitment that they've taken to, to then step forward again and join back into that which they had already committed to do. We've been distracted, he says, for nearly a year now. 
away from what it was we were doing together now that we've, we've come back to be of one mind again or we're moving back toward one-mindedness again, the way to keep going and growing together is to join in, to participate together in this work, this ministry that's going on among all the churches of giving ourselves for the sake of others, giving out of what we have, whatever that looks like, for the benefit and the blessing of others. That's why now, in terms of this restored relationship and the rejoicing in it, he turns then to this topic, which is a revisiting of something that they'd already started, something that already committed to. And now he encourages them, what you had started to do, what you'd wanted to do, it's time to step into it again. Now, this is not a frequent topic for me in particular. I don't, I don't think up reasons to talk about giving. But also, I think at the same time, we, 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 we don't avoid a topic when, it, when we come to it in Scripture just because it's perhaps uncomfortable for us. And uh, at the same time, we, 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 need to, we need to think about how we give and why we give and yet, not doing so based on, you know, it's, it's funny, it's actually, November is church budget time. So when we get together for our, for our annual, annual church family business meeting, we, we, one of the things we'll do is we'll hopefully approve the budget that the finance team and the deacons have been, have been working on together, and they've set that before the elders to the church, and hopefully the church membership says, yes, we support this budget for the next year, this plan of how we're going to use what God has provided. Well, the, the, the budget next year is actually significantly larger. We've expanded in three key areas. We've said we're going to commit more resources in the area of, of care and connection. We've had a lot of new people coming to Brush Prairie. We need to, we need to work at how we connect them into one another in the body of Christ so that we're not only worshiping together, but we're growing together, serving together. We need to invest in that. We also need to invest beyond our property line. We need, to, we need to invest more in community outreach. We want to invest more in international outreach and missions. And so to do these things, well, that takes more, but we're not just making up a number. We've looked at it and said, okay, over the last 12 months, this is how much God's people have given in this church. So that's what we'll use as our budget planning. The amount that God has provided is the amount that we'll anticipate and plan to use in the next year. And yet that's significant from the year before. So we're not, we're not talking about finances out of a point of need. We're not saying, I'm not, you're not going to hear me say today, oh, gee, you know, the budget's a little low now. You know, giving's been down a little bit. So, you know, we really need to see what God has to say to us about this and sort of guilt us into giving more. No, actually for the year, our giving is above budget. And so that opens up and it raises the question, Lord, what would you have us do with what you have been providing through your people? And that seems to be care and connection, community outreach, and international outreach. More of these resources that God has provided to us going beyond our property lines for the benefit of others. And yet, it's good that when we're talking about budget, when we're thinking about budget as a church body at that meeting next week, that we've also been thinking just recently in the word. What does God have to say? I've heard it said years ago that show me your checkbook and I'll tell you what your priorities are. I'll tell you what's important to you. Now that might not work anymore because a bunch of you don't have checkbooks anymore, right? Our times have changed. Okay, show me your debit card statement or your plastic statement, whatever kind of card it is, and I'll, I'll tell you 
what your priorities are. Or I might tell you what you're afraid of. I might tell you what, what you're distracted by. But uh, they, we, we invest ourselves in what we think is going to give us at least happiness, if not joy. We will put our resources there. And so God speaks to us and said, if that's so, then let me tell you more about where are you going to put your resources. We talk about giving. What do we need to know? Well, as Paul re- re- brings this back to this church and said, what you started, you want to continue, he approaches it in three directions. And those three are, and as we read the passage, I want you to look for these. The first one is give gracefully, that we give out of God's grace. This is actually God's gracious work in us and then through us. We give gracefully. We give faithfully. We give not only faithfully continuing what we've intended to do, we'll, we'll, we'll be careful to complete it, but we will give based on faith rather than fear. Thirdly, we give in wisdom. We give wisely. That uh, There are some principles about how do we handle um, funds that are collected together. How should a church handle the gathering of funds that are going to be used for God's ministry? So there's some good practical things that should be considered. And we'll, How does that relate to our church practices as well? First of all, give gracefully. That giving is not merely a discipline that I should do. There's something of God's working here. God's working in us, and then by that, God working through us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 1 to 9. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, an expectation, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Father, would you speak to us from your word? Lord, press in our own heart, Lord, your work of grace that we would indeed yield in whatever way that we need to, that we would hear your word and it would be changing us because we do come, as the song said, with, with, with open hearts. So, Father, speak to us and direct us that we might have the joy of giving, not of an expectation, not of obligation, but of giving by your grace in us and out of faith because we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Giving gracefully. Verse 1, grace giving, first of all, is it's God's working in us. God works in us and God works through us. They gave according to God's leading. It's not a matter of what should I give, but 
what, Lord, what would you give through me? It's a different way to ask the same question. I don't ask, what should I give to this need or that? But, Lord, what would you give through me? Because we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among. When Paul talks about their gathering and offering out of what they have, them reaching into their pockets and putting it into the plate, what he's talking about is, I want to tell you about God's grace among these people. It wasn't merely them. Now, they exercised their will, certainly, but they exercised their will according to God's gracious working in them. God, what would you do through me? Grace giving is God's working in us. For, uh, in, in verse 2, grace giving has its most joyful impact in circumstances when it's unexpected. The impact is not based on the amount. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God is not unjust to forget your labor of love and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God knows, and God values it. God esteems its true value. Remember that woman who gave a mite. She was a widow. She had nothing to sustain herself, and yet she gave all that she had, this one little copper coin. And Jesus had been sitting there, and he's watching one person put in after the other. And this was a big funnel-shaped thing that if you put in a lot of money, it would make a lot of sound. You get some recognition. This one, little, this one older woman drops in this one little tiny copper coin. And Jesus says to his disciples, did you see that? Did you see that? Truly, this woman gave more than anybody else. They said, what do you mean? I mean, we heard heavy, solid gold coins going into that thing, and because she gave all that she had. And heaven esteemed that more than the other. Most joyful impact. You know, when we, were, when we were on the mission field for 12 years, and we were supported by churches and by individuals, and the majority of our support did not come from the largest um, churches, and it did not come from a few people writing large checks, on occasion that happened, but the norm was small checks written faithfully month by month, and we so, we, we, we so more easily had an opportunity to present in and also were supported by small churches rather than big ones. You could look at a church and look at all the resources they must have, surely, and I even had a, I remember one church in particular, I went in and I was talking with the pastor and was, was describing our ministry and saying, you know, we'd love to come and share with what, what, what God has put before us to do, why he's sending us to Africa. We'd love to tell our story. And he said, well, you know, we could have you come and do that. And he said, if you did, you know, people would give something, they would give something into the offering for you and your ministry. He said, but my offering would be down by the same amount. Oh, that's stuck with me ever since. My offering. Oh, God forbid us that we would ever think of what God does among us and through us as, as ours, as belonging to us, that we are stewards of what he puts in, worshipfully puts in our hands that we might honor him. You know, I said, you know, don't take an offering. Let's not take an offering at all. Let's just, I could come in whatever form, whatever setting, whatever group, and I would just tell our story, and maybe there's somebody else that would be moved in the same way that there's an area, there's a way that they need to yield to him in, in, in devoting themselves to some ministry, some mission, some service that God has put on their heart. Nope, wouldn't do it. It was the small churches 
Small churches and, and small amounts, and that's by and large been the funding of faith missions. So even as here in Macedonia, it was a smaller church, and it was the poorer church that sets the example for this large and resourceful or, resourceful or wealthy church in Corinth. They set the example. So don't think, well, what, what, what difference could what I have make? Don't think of it in human terms. Don't think of it in earthly terms. What difference would this make? Think about joy in heaven and how God measures what he puts on your heart and how you respond to that. Grace giving is sacrificial. They gave, in verse 3 it says, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They gave what they they could afford and then they gave beyond what they could afford. They didn't give what they had less. They didn't give what they had left. They gave in a way that would cost them something else. They gave up something else in order to contribute to this offering for the sake of those Christians in another place, for the spiritual benefit of others. Grace giving is sacrificial. It's about giving what's right, not giving what's left. Grace giving is done in worship to God. Look at verse 4 and 5. They gave, him, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So giving was God-centered. Giving was not human-centered. Giving was not program-centered. Giving was, Lord, I give myself to you. What would you have me to do? Okay, that's what I'll do. And so then those gifts were received, not as money, not as a mere deposit, but they were received in the same way that a priest would receive an offering and carefully take that and handle that before the altar. Grace-giving is done in worship. And so in verse 7 he says, Excel in this grace also, because it's not merely about money. Paul says, you know, you have excelled. You excel in everything. You excel in faith and speech and knowledge in all earnestness. You're willing to roll up your sleeves and get to work. You're eager to get going. You're willing to participate. And you excel in our love for you. Now, that's kind of a confusing phrase. Literally in the Greek, it would, it would be kind of awkward in English, but it says something like this. In the from us in you love... I would describe it this way. Paul and those who ministered with them had loved the Corinthian church and their love initially in evangelism and their faithful love even through relational difficulty and and, and conflict. That love that Paul had for them had done its work in producing and nurturing and growing love in them. That love was reproduced. That love was replicated. And it was growing and spreading in the church. He says, you have that love for one another that's growing in you that you learned from us. He said, in the same way that you serve in all these other ways, excel in this grace. Excel in the grace of giving as you excel in the grace of encouragement, as you excel in the grace of forgiveness, as you excel in the grace of hospitality and sign up for a table on Christmas jazz, as you excel in the grace of, of faith and knowledge and and." Being a helper in Awana. I mean, you're going to sign up to join in with those exuberant kids for two hours on Thursday night. It's going to cost you something. I mean, if, even if it's merely Thursday night football, which may not be such a huge sacrifice, but it's going to cost you something. And yet it's worth it. So as you excel in all of these things, he says so also, don't let these Passages, don't let this sacrifice, don't let this, this, this God's grace working in you and through you, don't let that be merely about money. Money's simply one indicator. 
Our money is a representation of our time and our talents, isn't it? Let our time, our talents, our testimony, as well as our treasure be devoted to God in all kinds of way. At the end of my message, we normally receive the morning offering. Now we, now we word it that way for, it's a, there's certain things I'm funny about words. I don't like to use the word committee because the committee is a place where good ideas go to die. I like to talk about teams, okay? Teams get stuff done, Okay. So we don't have committees of the church, we have teams. We, we, we don't take the morning offering, we receive it. Because it's given freely, it is not grudgingly pulled out of your fingers, okay? We don't do it that way. It's passed by, you drop it in freely. We don't turn any little children upside down and shake them out for any coins that might be in their pockets. We don't take the offering, we receive it. But, but as we do that, 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 that time of offering in the church, we have these communication cards, And we invite you to offer a praise on those cards. To offer a prayer that we can join you in, a worshipful prayer to God. God, we're dependent on you for this. We need you to act. We we encourage you to use those communication cards to say, you know, Awana, yeah, okay, I'll help with that. Or I'd like more information. What would that look like? Maybe I could. And, and And you put that on the card. And I'm not merely offering something out of my pocket. I'm offering myself to God. Don't let chapter 8 be merely about money. Let it be much more than that. That How will we devote ourselves out of God's grace? We will give ourselves gracefully by God's grace for his purposes because that's what Jesus did for us. That's verse 9. Grace giving is Christ-centered. Jesus, although he was rich, for our sake he became poor. That you by his poverty, by him emptying himself, he made us rich. He made us heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. He made us children of heaven. He made us fully accepted before God. He made us to be seated already at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. What am I worried about tomorrow for? What am I worried about anything for? I can give myself away even if it kills me. Because... I can never die. That's what Jesus has done for me. That's the the song, that ancient words, even martyrs through the ages, that they have been faithful even unto death, giving themselves, pouring themselves out, that we might have this word of God still. And it's worth it. Give gracefully, that out of God's grace in us, we will graciously give for his work, for his ministry, for the benefit of others. Give faithfully. We give faithfully in that we are faithful to continue. We keep going in it and we give in faith, trusting God for what we need. Look at verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance also may supply your need that there may be an equity. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, there's much to say here too, but first of all, be faithful to complete what God has put in your heart. What you begin to do, continue to do. When you you take a step forward, when you say, I will 
give of myself. We're going to make a commitment here. It's going to cost us something. We're going to have to give something up, but we're going to do it. Expect trouble. Maybe car trouble. Maybe other distractions. Maybe other opportunities. Things are going to come along that are going to challenge your ability to continue in what you have decided before the Lord. This is what we should do. That's why it's good to sit down. If you're married, sit down as a couple together. Maybe as a family together, sit down and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to commit to this together so that you are witnesses for each other when distractions or obstacles come. Okay, well, how will we do this? How will we continue faithfully in what God has set before us to do? And you involve the whole family or you involve your, your spouse in this together and not just as an arbitrary amount. God has led us and we're going to continue it. Give faithfully according to what you have, not to make, not for you to be poor so that others are rich. I think you think of the classic tele, televangelists here, right? Fancy houses, big cars, all air-conditioned dog houses, and all the nonsense. Saying, if you just give this little amount, you give some seed by faith, seed money to, to this ministry to make me richer, and out of that, we're sure that God's going to pour out his blessings and you're going to have a bunch too. It's kind of like this. Well, first of all, that's, that's actually a very selfish motivation for giving, isn't it? And it's kind of like, God, Lord, if you help me to win the lottery, Lord, you help me to win the lottery, well, I'm going to give a lot. Lord, I'm going to give, some, Lord, I'm going to give at least 10% of that back to you if you help me to win the lottery. So, Father, you know, it should be me rather than just somebody who's just going to waste that money, right, Lord? Doesn't seem like a good prayer, a very self-serving prayer. I mean, it's a pretty good deal. If I could win a million dollars that way, I get 90% of it. God only gets, a, gets 10. Everybody wins, right? Especially me. That's not his purpose here. I'm not saying, Corinth, you should give so that you'll be poor just so those people in Jerusalem can live it up. That's not the point at all. No, give where there is a legitimate, genuine need in order to help bear their burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, how much then should we give? That, that idea of 10%. We, we talk about a tithe, and a tithe simply means 10%. Now, we're not under law. And so you could say, well, 10%, well, I'm not under law. That's a law standard, and we're free of that, absolutely. You could give 90%. It would be just fine. You're totally free to do that. Now, 10% is a, is a pattern that starts not with Moses, but actually starts way before Moses with Abraham. Abraham, when he had, by God's help, he had, he had gone and he'd rescued Lot and he'd got, the, he'd got all the spoils that had been stolen away from the city back and they, and they richly were going to reward him. Well, well, at one point in one of those deals, he, he gives a 10% of all that he had taken in the spoils of war. He gives a 10% of it to the high priest Melchizedek. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek except that we know for some reason Abraham already knew that the right amount for him to give was 10%. And so there's a portion here, there's the idea here that out of what we have, we give a representative amount. And that whether that's a large amount or a small amount, we give a representative amount out of what we have, not out of what we don't have. So that the burden is shared among God's people for the sake of others. Faithful giving is based on faith in God's provision. This is something Paul does really well, is he evokes an Old Testament story. Look at verse 15. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. He's talking about that manna story. That when they gathered up, some people gathered a whole bunch. Hold on, look at all this. We, we, we got to get as much of this as we can. And when they went and measured it in, into the omer-sized buckets, 
they found out that they had exactly one omer for each person in the family. And when pe- few people were, maybe they came after the ones that were gathering so much and there were only small bits left here and there. And when they brought what they had, which didn't seem like enough, and they measured it into the omer-sized buckets and they found out somehow God multiplied what they had gathered and they had as well an omer for each person in their family. So each had according to their need. And there were some, there were some who said, you know, this is good. God has provided today. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, so maybe we, should, maybe we should hold some of this back for tomorrow. Well, God has specifically said, every morning you can gather. So they had a clear word from God. We are told, put something away for a rainy day. We're we're told, be like the ant, you know, take and store something up for tomorrow. Don't presume. But there's a time when storing something up for tomorrow so that you're ready to have something to give to others in time of need, There's there's a line somewhere between where storing up rightly something for tomorrow ends and building bigger barns for my own ease begins. The problem is, I don't know where that line is. I surely don't know where it is, and I would not, I would not uh, dare to try to guess from up here and tell you where that line is for you. You should have something set aside for a rainy day and for, and for tomorrow. And yet here, God had said, my people, trust me for tomorrow. You can trust me. As I provided for you today, I will provide for you tomorrow. And when some of them said, yeah, okay, well, God, we're going we're gonna to believe what you say, and we're going to hold something back for ourselves as well. And tomorrow morning, they opened it up, and it stank. And there were maggots in their manna. And so it is with us. If we rely on ourselves instead of trusting God, we will find as well that which we thought would provide for us, that which we thought would fill us, that which we thought would sustain us, that which we thought would give us happiness, if not joy, will end up smell and be full of maggots. You can't leave it out playing on for tomorrow. God's provision is each day according to its need. God provides enough for our needs and trying to hoard it instead of trusting him is going to lead to disappointment. It's going to lead to maggots in our manna. Thirdly, we give gracefully. We give out of God's grace working in us. We give faithfully. We give trusting God and we give then faithful to God's promise and his working in us. What God began, we continue to step into. Finally, we give wisely. There's some good practical advice in the midst of this, and you can see the importance of this when you look around at how giving is handled today and how finances and how scandals so easily arise. There's some interesting principles that are described here in verse, uh, from verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. He not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of God, for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of men. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who now is more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. 
As for Titus, he's my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. As for our other brothers, the well-known one and this other one he mentions, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. Verses 10 and 11, first of all, this giving has been planned, it's been explained, it's been organized, it's not a rash emotional appeal. They plan to give and now they're to give according to the plan. This was mentioned back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. They asked him about this giving project. How should they do this? And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he gave them instructions there. So it's not new, it's, it's not a rash emotional appeal. Verses 16 and 17, Titus also fully supports this project. You know Titus. And Titus is eager to help them to participate. So Titus is, is, is encouraging them and describing to them what the opportunity is and how they can participate in it. They're giving to a shared vision that is confirmed by others that they trust. That's Titus's role here. You know Titus. You trust Titus. As Titus describes this, as Titus paints the picture, give to a shared vision Confirmed by others you can trust. Sometimes we have the idea, well, I need to give to the Lord. So I'm just going to give to this place and that place, this ministry or that one. And I don't know what they do with the money, but that's, that's between them and the Lord. We should just give and we will trust that God will deal with them however he deals with them. And there's a principle here that no, there's an accountability and we give to something when it's connected with a particular vision and it's confirmed by people that are reputable that we can trust. Verse 18 and 19, there's this well-known brother. The problem with the well-known brother, I don't know who he is. Does anybody know? We don't know. He's so well-known that we don't know who he is. He's so well-known that Paul doesn't even bother the name. Maybe it was Apollos. Maybe it was Barnabas. Maybe it was Timothy. We don't know. Maybe it was a guy named Aristarchus. I think that's how you, how you say his name. There's been four or five suggestions as to who the well-known brother was, but it's kind of amusing in, in, the, in the area of biblical studies that somebody so well-known is completely unknown. In other cases, somebody you think the story would have passed right on by is somebody that rises to the surface, and who knows how your name may be preserved. But anyway, the well-known brother, he's well-known at the time. There's this other guy that Paul mentions as well. So there's Titus, there's, there's, there's this well-known brother, there's this other. There are many people involved in this gift. There's a safeguarding of it together. They safeguard its administration and leave no room for reproach. You know, an interesting side, side story in history. Around this same time, there was a Jewish preacher who was going around collecting money from synagogues for the temple. He was collecting gold and a very expensive purple fabric. These are things that were needed, he said, for the temple in Jerusalem. Only problem is they were never going to the temple in Jerusalem. And when, and when this came to light, when the scandal broke, the emperor was so angry about this gathering of, of, of all these funds from the synagogues in Rome that he threatened to expel all of the Jews from Rome. Now, it didn't happen at that time. They were, they were spelled by another emperor later. But it was a huge scandal, and it was right about the same time that these offerings. And so there could be a sensitivity to how money is being handled. What is money being collected for out in the Roman, Roman provinces and going back to Jerusalem? That doesn't mean, Paul says, well, we couldn't, we couldn't do that. We can't take such an offering because it might appear like there's going to be a scandal. But he says we're going to be very careful how we handle the money. There are going to be three eyes on every coin. 
We're going we're gonna to have an openness and a transparency together. You know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this, verse, if this passage played a part in this, but even when we came to the church, we found that in the finance processes, when somebody's reimbursed, when a payment is made to a vendor or anything else, when a check is written out of the church, one person requests it, another person approves it, a third person involved in the process actually issues that check, and a fourth person normally signs it. There will be at least three, if not four, people involved in that process. There's a safeguarding of funds, not that we don't trust anybody, but that we want our procedures, our policies, how we handle gifts that are given worshipfully to the Lord, that we handle them in an upright way, and even those who give of themselves to participate in those very practical administrative ministries that they are not put in a situation where somebody could make some accusation or suggest something untoward or inappropriate is going on. That everybody's protected because things are out in the open and things are clear and things are verified. And fortunately, the pastor is a long way from any of it. If you missed the offering for some reason, you went out of the room for a moment or something like that, uh, now and again somebody's given me or, or come to me at the end of the service and said, Pastor, I missed the offering this morning. Can you take it and put that in? I said, no, I can't. I just don't do that. I, I, I have a rule for myself. Nobody else told me, Bob, we can't trust you with money, but I as a rule for myself. I don't take money in those kind of situations. There, there's a box over there on the wall. I said, you could put it right over there. Or you could give it to the ushers and they will get it into the offering, but Bob doesn't do that. Because we want to protect and we want to be careful about how we handle gifts that are given as a worshipful sacrifice to the Lord. Some of you serve in kind of not as fun. It's, it's, a finance team is not nearly as fun as Awana, okay? But some of you serve there. And you serve in the deacons and you work on things like budget and, and finances and making sure the accounts are in order and... and uh, uh, processing the month-by-month -month reports and all of those things, things that aren't terribly exciting but are very needful. Thank you for that. If you have those kind of skills, you, you may not have known, hey, what I do well actually is important and need. We have volunteers from within the church who, who don't serve in those roles, but they have an accounting background, and they actually form our audit team that takes a fresh set of eyes and looks at the books at the end of the year. And so... We give thanks for those who serve in some of those very needed administrative and finance roles as well. Conclusion, the limiting factor. We give gracefully. We give not out of what I can do, but we give out of God's working in us. And God's gracious, gracious provision to us, we give gracefully. We give faithfully. We give faithfully carrying out what God has set before us, but we give in faith, trusting God for his provision. And we do that wisely, not just saying, well, I'm giving this to the Lord, whatever happens, I'm going to throw the money up towards heaven and however it's used. No, we're going to give it carefully. We're going to give it specifically. We're going to make sure that is handled wisely and well so that God is honored and the purposes of the gospel are advanced. The limiting factor in all of that is not what's in your pocket, but what's in your heart. You'll give what you have for what you believe is going to make you happy, feel good, give you joy. Whether it's at the coffee shop, whether it's at the mall. Informing our heart. So what's in our heart directs where we go. But also, did you know that what's, where we go can also inform our heart? 
The Lord Jesus described this this way. You can redirect. When my heart is directed toward heaven, I'm going to invest what I have there. But Jesus said, you can direct your heart toward heaven by how you give. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Hey, wait a minute. That means there are no moths and no rain in heaven? Is that what that means? I'm not sure. Certainly the moth. I'm not sure about the rain. And where thieves do not break in and steal, that's good news. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See what he says? You put your treasure there and your heart will follow it. But we might be a little afraid. We might be afraid about our needs here in the future rather than what we could give and invest in heaven. Jesus again says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, and where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where you invest your treasure, your heart will follow. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. I almost thought, you know, we should shift the order of the service from our normal pattern And we should have the offering before the message so you wouldn't think that I was trying to pull at your hearts and at your pockets with what God's word says. But again, I want to to remind us that this message is, 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 is about more than money. Don't let this merely be about money. What way would I give myself in some new stretching that I would give myself to the Lord? And maybe this offering is the opportunity to do that. Maybe it's Christmas jazz. Maybe it's Awana. Maybe it's they need someone new. Ethan Cobb and Alyssa Cobb will be leaving and heading to Camp Tadmore. They need somebody now to take up the Sunday school, the the morning Sunday school for the middle school class. Maybe that's where I would devote myself. But let this be an opportunity, even as we receive this morning's offering, that we commit ourselves again in faith. Maybe it's just a matter of I am going to offer Praise to God for what I've seen him do this week. I am going to trust God in this shared prayer request that others would pray with me because we desperately need God's help. But let's take this offering as an opportunity for us to commit ourselves again by God's grace, in faith in him, to present ourselves before our God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we trust you. Father, we are grateful for your grace to us for life and for godliness. Lord, for giving us the privilege, for enabling us by your spirit that we might indeed actually follow in some ways in the steps of our Lord Jesus who poured himself out for us. Lord, would you receive this offering that your church now gives? And Father, however it's made up in our time, our testimony, our talents, as well as our treasures, Lord, would you receive what, how we lay ourselves before you? And would you use it in a way that would cause us to marvel and wonder and again praise you together for what you do for us on our behalf? 
Lord, thank you that we participate in your eternal work of redemption. That we do that together. And that we do that by your grace. So Lord, uh, make our offering of ourselves as well as what we have, make that a fragrant aroma to you and be pleased. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.